from Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Amen. You may be seated. Well, welcome or welcome back and uh, to Nehemiah. Congratulations if uh, you have been here uh, the five previous weeks and uh, we are in the bell lap here today. Lord willing, in uh, about 50 minutes we will have covered the expanse of Nehemiah at least at some depth. <clears throat> Today we have the final chapter, Nehemiah, um, and just a quick run-up to that from the, the previous week. Um, in Nehemiah 8 through 10, we saw this great movement of God's Word in the lives of God's people where it was proclaimed by Ezra, uh, interpreted to the people by the Levites. Uh, it was applied to the lives of the people as they wept, as they then rejoiced, as they repented, as they celebrated uh, the Feast of Booths, and eventually in uh, Nehemiah 10, as they renewed the, their covenant uh, with, with a number of things that we'll actually refer back to today. And then in Nehemiah 11 and 12, we saw the repopulation of Jerusalem, there's lists and lists and lists and lists of folks who, who live in Jerusalem, who live around Jerusalem, uh, and we see the dedication uh, of the wall and sort of a reestablishment of the normal order of temple service uh, in, in Jerusalem. And now we come in Nehemiah 13 to a time that is probably 15 or so years later, maybe 15 or 20 years later. It's not immediately obvious, but, but it, will, it will become so shortly. So if you, would, uh, if you haven't already, please turn to Nehemiah 13. We're actually going to start in verse 4 uh, because the first three verses sort of connect themselves back to the end of Nehemiah 12 and the dedication of the wall. 
So Nehemiah 13, verses 4 through 9. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by the commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Now it is a, a curious thing that here we have, I just want, want to come go back with me to Nehemiah 10:28, just the last sentence. This is the end of what, what I just mentioned, the, the renewal of the covenant of the people of God, and their last statement there, after a number of very specific things, is, "We will not neglect the house of our God." This is, this is their, their sort of summary statement over a number of things that they've said. And now back to Nehemiah 13, and what do we find but neglect of the house of God? Uh, at least here, in the form of a chamber, uh, you'll see in verse, didn't underline that, 5, yes, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering. And on and on and on. So it is, it is altogether possible that it wasn't that they took a bunch of grain offerings and things out of this chamber so that Tobiah could then use it, but that the offerings had stopped coming in. There was neglect, and we'll see that in these next verses, but there was neglect of the giving, which then they said, well, we have an empty room. We have, you know, why not? Why not? Why not have Tobiah be here? Uh, and, and suddenly it makes sense in, some, in somebody's mind, in Elisha's mind, to, to allow this to happen. Tobiah, one of the uh, strongest enemies of God's people and, and God's work in the wall, along with Sanballat, is now, well, he's essentially living in the courts of the, the temple, not in the temple proper, but, but in, the, in a chamber in the courts of the temple. <clears throat> Verse 6 lets us see the setting here um, where, we, where we see it, that this happens in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes. Uh, if, we, if we went to the very beginning of Nehemiah, we'd see that that was the 20th year of, of Artaxerxes, so that in the 32nd year, Nehemiah went back to Artaxerxes. So that was 12 years later that he left Jerusalem and then was away for some time. And we don't, we don't know what that is. There are some clues later on that this was probably 
several years that, that it may have been three, five, ten years. It's hard, hard to say. Um, leave you in suspense on what that clue is. We'll get that later. But, uh, but now he returns. And, and lo and behold, there's the enemy of God living next to the temple of God. Uh, neglect, um, neglect of the temple is the first thing that we see. And it is, an, it is a, an, an, a curious thing. Uh, Tobiah is somehow related to this priest. We don't know how. We're not given uh, details of that. And we'll see this re- repeated again in Sanballat's life later in this chapter. But what we have in verse 5 with Tobiah now residing in this chamber is really it's a, it's a physical picture of the spiritual reality that that where uh, the service of God and his people in the temple once existed that there now is an idolater's sofa right or whatever they whatever his furniture was um, right that 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 this is here um, and uh, we will see this theme re- repeated in different ways through the remainder of this chapter where um, God is being shoved out uh, of the people's lives in different ways. Here it's, it's physically, literally, um, God, is, God and, and the, the service in his temple is physically being replaced with the furniture uh, of, of an idolater. <clears throat> One, one of the commentators that I read uh, put it this way, that Jerusalem had become, uh, in Nehemiah's absence, a city that had settled down to a comfortable compromise with the Gentile world. Now that, that should uh, just give you some shivers right down your spine, uh, not necessarily because of Nehemiah and the the Judahites and Jerusalemites of B.C. 440, but for us. And, and, and the question that, I, that just haunts me is, have, have I settled for just a, a comfortable compromise uh, with, with the world, uh, the unbelieving world around me? Um, keep your radar up for that. We'll come back to it. Um, but... Uh, Nehemiah, we have seen him to be a man of action, and he continues to be so in uh, this chapter. He cleans house, literally. He just threw, threw the stuff out. And uh, no, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And it's uh, curious. It's not the only temple cleansing that we're aware of in the Bible, isn't it? Right? There, there was a man around the the early A.D. years, who, who went in and cleansed the temple a couple times with great zeal for the house of the Lord. Yeah. And, uh, and what is the temple today? Well, we're told that we are collectively in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 17. We're told that you are, that I am individually, temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. And again, uh, these, are, these are 
good questions to ask ourselves, whether we have found a, a compromise, a comfortable compromise with the unbelieving world in terms of the temple of the Lord. All right. We have squeezed enough out of that. Next, next verses. Uh, verses 10 through 14, we'll see just another aspect of this temple neglect. Let me read verses 10 through 13 first here. Nehemiah again relating in first person. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pediah of the Levites. And as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Mattaniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. So, in, again, this is connected with Tobiah taking up residence in the temple. Uh, there, there were no longer uh, offerings being brought in for the Levites and the singers, so nothing had to be stored, and in fact, it had gotten so bad that the temple workers, those Levites and singers, who, who depended 100% on the support of the people, well, they just went back to their family farms because they were hungry and they needed to eat. Uh, and so they had uh, vamoosed from uh, Jerusalem. The, again, we see the drastic uh, contrast Verse 11, Nehemiah declaring the house of the Lord being forsaken with what we had looked at back at the end of chapter 10, that the people had committed to not neglect the house of the Lord. And, and all of that goodwill that we had seen at the end of chapter 12, if you'll remember at the dedication of the wall where, where people were appointed to the business of managing these these offerings and the people committed to, to support uh, the, the workers in the temple, all of that has just disappeared. It's just, it's just gone. Um, and again, um, we have sort of just the, the pushing out from the, from the everyday life of the people um, God's command. They have, they have replaced uh, now financially, right, what they were offering, that, that money went somewhere, Those, that grain, that wine, that oil went somewhere, it just didn't, it just didn't go to the support of the, the Levites and the singers and the priests any longer. Um, and so there's it, it just another, it's another example, a financial reality, or a financial picture of this spiritual reality in the, the lives of the people. Um, in verse 11, where Nehemiah confronted the officials, this is, 
This is a word like bringing a case against them. This is a, this is a legal term. Uh, I, I rebuked them. I brought accusation against them. We'll, and we'll see this very same thing repeated in each of the sections throughout this chapter. Um, and, and note, he, uh, he, he didn't confront the Levites and the singers who had abandoned their posts, nor did he really confront the rank-and-file people uh, in and around Jerusalem. He confronted the officials who had responsibility to continue to seek and encourage and exhort the obedience of the people. Now that's an, that's an interesting thing to see of, of where Nehemiah is directing his confrontation over the forsakenness of the house. Another uh, interesting thing to observe here, and, and these, are, these are maybe some, just, they're not mainline in, in Nehemiah, but it's an interesting leadership lesson that Nehemiah is not just stamping his foot, yelling and screaming. He's not just throwing out Tobiah's stuff out of the temple, but he's actually replacing it. He's putting systems back into place. So in that first section, he didn't just clear out the temple chamber, but he, he brought things back into order. He brought the offerings back in, uh, the, the temple vessels and such. Here he's reinstituting. He is, he is appointing people and saying, Joe, you are in charge of this, and Jason, this is yours, and uh, Alex, this is yours, and, and people are put in, in charge of making sure that these systems are still, uh, are going to uh, be in place again. Verse 14 then, you know, we, have, we have just right in the midst of, of this narrative, a quick prayer from Nehemiah. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. So here, Nehemiah is really asking of the Lord two things. Remember um, and, and don't erase, don't wipe out, don't nullify, please, Lord, what, what has been done here to correct this. And, and he calls them, the ESV calls it, my good deeds. That, if, if you're a hack Hebrew dude like me, you know, that word there is hesed, right? And, 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 and that is the word that normally is the steadfast love, the covenant love of the Lord, his steadfast faithfulness. And here, um, Nehemiah applies that to his own actions, not, not in pride, but he points out that what, what we're doing here is in alignment with your covenant. We're, we're seeking to be faithful as a people as you have been faithful to us. And so it's an appropriate word that please, Lord, don't, don't, don't erase this work that we're doing here. Yeah. Okay. So b before we go on, because I want you to see the pattern, uh, we've, we've sort of looked at two sections, but really I think they're just two parts of, of one section because we'll see this pattern repeated two more times in this chapter. So as we go forward, look for Nehemiah identifies some issue. Um, he confronts somebody. He takes some fairly radical action that can cause us to smile a little bit or think, wow, I don't know if I'd do that. Um, 
he, he, he does some sort of positive replacement or reinstitution of a, of a system, and then he prays to God uh, over what has just occurred. So with that, on we go to verse 15. The topic becomes Sabbath law. So let me read verses 15 and 16. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself, exclamation point. And uh, so yes, now, now we change topics and it's another observation uh, that Nehemiah is seeing and he's appalled by that <clears throat> out in the countryside, people on the Sabbath are just, well, it's harvest season, we'll just go harvest. It's, it's, it's time to harvest grapes, it's time to, to uh, reap the barley, it, and it doesn't really matter, it seems, that it happens to be a Sabbath. Or in fact, it's time to haul that stuff to market. We'll just, we'll just get that done um, on the Sabbath. And that there were people of Tyre, T-Y-R-E, a coastal town up north, um, up north, sorry, that's north, uh, of, uh, of Jerusalem, Tyre and Sidon, right, recognize those names, they're up there, um, who, who are bringing and into the city and selling uh, things, all sorts of things, um, in Jerusalem on the Sabbath. And... Uh, yeah, we, well, well, we'll get to some other references about it in a second, but, but Nehemiah is, is, is appalled. He gives a warning to, to folks at the end of verse 13, or 15, and uh, evidently that was not heeded because now we have another confrontation. Uh, verses 17 and 18. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you're doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So Nehemiah gets to the point that it, this is not about figs or grain or barley or fish. It is, it is about God's law. It is about the Sabbath. It is about profaning the Sabbath. And, and here again, we, we see him accusing uh, the people, the nobles in this case, that they have now in another way pushed God to the side, now in, in a temporal sense, T-E-M-P-A-O-R-A-L, a temporal sense, right? So we saw it in a physical sense with Tobiah and the temple, we, we saw it in a financial sense in the ties, and now we see it in a time-based sense that, that God is just being nudged off to the side, squeezed out of, of the everyday lives of the people of God, the covenant people of God. Um, and his reference in uh, 
verses 17 and 18 refers back to Jeremiah 17. We have time for that. So let's go find that. Jeremiah 17. That's to the right. Jeremiah 17, we'll start in verse 19. <clears throat> Jeremiah, who's, who's prophesying just right ahead of the exile, right ahead of the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile, which then all of a sudden makes what Nehemiah is saying make tremendous sense. Um, Jeremiah 17, verse 19. Thus said the Lord to me, Go and stand in the people's gate by which the kings of Judah enter and by which they go out and in all the gates of Jerusalem and say, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. Thus says the Lord, Take care for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. And do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath, or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy, as I commanded your fathers. Yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck, that they might not hear and receive instruction. And let's skip down to verse 27. But if you do not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy and not to bear a burden and enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and shall not be quenched. And this is precisely what Nehemiah is reminding the people of that take a lesson, uh, people. Learn from, from history. Learn from what has happened. Um, for our God does not change. Right? So we, we should learn a lesson from uh, those people as well. Uh, God will not be mocked uh, as his people ignore him. As his people act functionally as though they are not his people. They have a comfortable compromise with the unbelieving world around them. Grace exists and sin is forgiven. Yes and amen in Christ. But God will not be mocked. Uh, God, will, God will discipline and God will act for his own honor and his own glory in the lives of his people. And this is what Nehemiah is reminding uh, the people of. Okay. You've, you've read Jeremiah Many of you knew Jeremiah or your grandparents did, right? And you know what happened. Don't let this happen again. All right. Verse 19, I'm back, I'm sorry, I'm back in Nehemiah 13. I'm gently reminded by my dear bride that I don't often tell people when I've switched pages in my Bible. Bless her heart, thank you. Nehemiah 13, we're back there. <clears throat> In verse 19 now. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates 
that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice, but I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. All right, so again we see Nehemiah, again, not just having a fit over this, but also putting in place, taking positive steps to put in place the system that will help keep the Sabbath holy. In this case, he takes some of his servants, and as the sun is going down Friday night, the, the, the Jewish day began at sundown, not at sun, not at midnight. They didn't have smartphones and watches, so they didn't exactly know. Well, they got close, but nobody wanted to know when midnight was. So it was easier. You know? And, by the way, that's just a whole Genesis 1-5 thing in the Hebrew mind. There was evening and morning the first day. Evening and morning. That's how a day is marked. Evening and then morning. So, um, anyway, I digress. So, so, Friday night, sun's going down, he sends his servants out, close the gates and guard the gates no, that no one would come in from sundown on Friday and then all through Saturday until sundown Saturday, till the, the Sabbath is over. Um, he uh, later will assign Levites to that task in, in verse 22. Uh, in the meantime, uh, those merchants who were coming in from the country with their loads of whatever uh, were outside the gates, and Nehemiah promises them that he will lay hands on them if they hang around, and it's not that kind of... It's not that sort of ordination laying on of hands that he's speaking of, of course. And they get the, they get the point, and off they go. Um, and uh, then we come uh, to, to the end of verse 22, where Nehemiah again prays. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. And uh, now we see just another glimpse into Nehemiah's heart that he, he knows that being remembered for what is, he's doing is not really on its own merits. He's, he's asking to be spared uh, according to the steadfast love of God, not, not according to his, um, his marks, right? Okay, next section we go. And next topic, verses 23 and 24. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Okay. Um, the very women, people, who were mentioned, we didn't read it this morning, but back in verses 1 through 3 of Nehemiah, where 
where the uh, people had read from the book of the law that no Moabite or Ammonite should stand in the assembly of the people. Again, this was 15 or 20 years before, and so the, the people just separated themselves. Well, now they are not only together, but they are married to one another. Not only that, but their children are not even speaking Hebrew. They are speaking the other languages. This is our clue of Nehemiah having been gone for several years, right? If you work from the assumption that things were all okie-dokie when Nehemiah left, then from that point on, things needed to decline, marriages needed to occur, children born and get old enough to speak any language um, when Nehemiah returns, right? So whatever that is, if that's a minimum of three, four, five years that he is away. <clears throat> and, and this sin, we, we, we talked about it at length during Ezra. Um, it's a chronic sin of the people of Israel and a serious one. Um, because to, to have a marriage that was outside the faith was to put at risk the heart of the one who married. Right, this, and, and the same is true today, but, but the, uh, we'll, we'll see just in a bit here of, of Solomon and, uh, and what happened late in his life because of, well, they're just called foreign marriages, illegal marriages, illegitimate marriages. Um, um, and the reality isn't actually uh, the ethnicity or the foreign uh, nature of a bride or a husband, uh, though that's it's kind of shorthand for being wed to an unbeliever, someone outside the covenant community, and we're given that same injunction today to to not be unequally yoked, right? To be uh, wed to one outside the faith. The loss of language uh, has, its, has its, uh, another uh, real impact um, that, that is critical within Israel, and that is uh, loss of language means loss of the scriptures in one generation, right? So they, they didn't have, you know, Chinese Old Testament and the Russian Old Testament. Or, or they, they had the scripture, they had the Torah in Hebrew, you know, and some in Aramaic. And, and, if, and if you didn't, and, and nobody had their own copy so the way it was transmitted was by hearing by speaking and if if you're bringing along your little boy right to the to the reading of the word of God and all he can understand is Ashdodite well it's it's just gibberish to him to to hear the word of God spoken in Hebrew right so the the the, the loss of language was also the loss of the scriptures in those cases. All right. <clears throat> Verses 25 to 27 then. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? 
Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? All right. So Nehemiah is ratcheting up his confrontational skills. Um, and this, this may not actually look like what it just reads like in English. Um, the, the curse, he's, he's not just stringing together expletives against these people. He's, he is reminding them of the covenant curses. God is a God of promises. He promises blessing, but he also promises curses. And, in, and Nehemiah is here likely just reminding them of the covenant curses that are promised to the people of Israel for unfaithfulness. Um, Beating them, pulling out their hair, probably not, maybe not, just a rant, not just a back alley brawl, but Nehemiah is the governor. He carries the rod of God. He bears the sword. He has the right to execute judgment in the name of God in Israel. And so this, this very likely could be uh, the, the result of an adjudication of this in a religious court, where, where actually some of the punishments could have been stoning to death. Instead, it was a beating and a partial hair pulling. That I, yeah, I don't, that's serious. I mean, no matter how you interpret that, that just makes me hurt just thinking about it. But, um, but it's, it is a, it's a serious thing. And again, we see uh, Nehemiah positing the positive replacement. So he's not, he's not just going after people but he's, for punishment, but he's also causing them to reaffirm the oath to be faithful. We'll see that in the second part of verse 25. Go back with me to uh, 1 Kings 11, if you would, uh, because it's, it's worth seeing specifically what God has said in uh, the life of Solomon. 1 Kings 11. <clears throat> Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods." Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. You cannot miss the repetition, right? And the core issue here is the turning away 
of one's heart from God. That's, that's really the, the center of this. And God makes it clear that this is, this is not a, a chance or probability. Uh, it is surely, right, in uh, the end of verse 2, surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. There is, there is no doubt that this will happen. And the same remains true for us today. So I, I, I encourage you to ask yourself, um, who, who are your closest confidants in your life? Are they, are they people who turn your heart towards God? Or are, they, are they people who turn your heart away from God? There's no middle ground here, by the way. You don't get, ah, so, you know. Um, that, that's, that's, there's no fence here to straddle, right? Uh, a, a person who is your most intimate companion, whether it's in your home or in your workplace, neighborhood, wh- whatever that is, is either aiming you Godward or aiming you somewhere else. And, and that's serious stuff. That, that, you know, brought Nehemiah to reciting covenant curses and uh, bringing to court people who were disobedient. Before we leave 1 Kings 11, <clears throat> there is an impact not only on Solomon's life here. Verse 11, 1 Kings 11, verse 11. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Huh. I had never seen that connection until this past couple of weeks. This is, this is stated as a reason, uh, at least on the surface here, within God's infinite wisdom, but the reason on the ground for the divided kingdom. This is the reason, is, is Solomon's unfaithfulness uh, because of his marriages to women who turned his heart away. That's profound. Back to Nehemiah. <clears throat> yep. Verses... 28 and 29, just a continuation of this same theme. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So this issue of marriages outside the covenant community was all the way to the top that that the grandson of the high priest had married the daughter of really enemy number one of God and Israel uh, Sanballat's daughter Uh, and this is just strictly you know for, for the high priest forbidden Leviticus 21 14 if you want to go look that up, that, that, that the high priest is to be a man who is married, is what said, one of his own. And it means a, a woman within the covenant community. <clears throat> so it is 
interesting and no accident that here at the very end of Nehemiah, we have found the, the two enemies who were first named, uh, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, named as being related, intermarried with the people of Israel. Um, that could be discouraging, and we'll come back to that in about five minutes. But uh, um, here again, Nehemiah is, is praying, calling on God to be righteous, just um, with, with those who are unrepentant, that, that God would just be, show himself just. Um, let's get these last two verses and then wrap up a handful of things from Nehemiah. Nehemiah gives us really his summary. Thus, I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. And we're, we're not sure whether this is Nehemiah's summary of this chapter. Nehemiah's summary of the entire book of Nehemiah, because remember, Ezra and Nehemiah was sort of one big long thing, one book uh, in the, its first days. <clears throat> but it is an interesting thing that really his two points here in, in his summary is that one, that he has cleansed, purified, separated the people, restored them to a purity that was, was not there. And he has reestablished the, the orderly worship of God, the temple service, uh, the, the workers, you know, priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, all those folks. And his prayer, again, is that he is asking to be remembered for good by God. He's, he's not asking for uh, the praise of men, for... Uh, anyone around Jerusalem to think that he's a great guy. He, he wants to know that he is pleasing to the Lord. And uh, I think that is a, a wonderful uh, thing for us to, to think about and to strive for. So as we wrap this up, um, just to revisit the themes that we laid out in the first week of Nehemiah so many, many weeks ago, um, that God has moved providentially in the hearts of whomever he wills to a accomplish whatever he wishes. So we've seen that in the heart of Nehemiah himself. We've seen it in the heart of Artaxerxes the king, in the heart of the people to serve and give. Uh, second, the Lord remains faithful to his promises, even when we are unfaithful, even when the people of Israel were unfaithful. The Lord remained faithful faithful. Third, that worship is at the very center of the lives of the people of God. Uh, we've, we've seen in prayer, in the centrality of God's word, uh, in obedience, in financial giving. Uh, and these things are, they're just drop dead serious to God. Yeah. Um, and finally, that opposition to the Lord's work will always be present. And, and sadly, here at the end of Nehemiah, we see that opposition right within the people. 
in, in, in neglect. Um, but that that opposition will ultimately fail and God's good purposes will ultimately prevail. Um, I have in there as well for you um, a little chart. We won't look at any of this, but I encourage you, uh, as I had said when we started this, when you think about Nehemiah, you should also think about Malachi. Um, and, and maybe specifically the end of Nehemiah, because it might be that while Nehemiah was away, back with Artaxerxes, that those might be the years that Malachi was prophesying in Jerusalem. Because you'll see the very same things that Malachi is railing about, rightly so, listed in what we just covered in Nehemiah 13 when, when Nehemiah returns to the city. You see the very same topics there. And sadly, if you go from 13 back to the promises made by the people in Nehemiah 10, you will see just a one for one. We will not do this. Nehemiah came back and they're doing, well, we won't do that. We will give the third of the shekel to the, the temple. The, the, the giving had, had dried up that the Levites couldn't even feed themselves. They left the temple. All right, so just on and on. Which <clears throat> brings um, us to the very end of this. And it's, it, is a, it is not the ending that we normally expect where the violin music rises up triumphantly and the sun comes up over the horizon and the birds are singing, right? At the end, neither at the end of Ezra or at the end here. Because here, even though you see Nehemiah reinstituting these things, putting this back in, in place, I don't know how you respond to that, but I think, that ain't gonna last. That's gonna, that's, that's gonna, that's gonna fall apart again. There's just unfaithfulness. We'll, we'll come back. Ezra ends with the people divorcing their foreign wives on a, on a muddy, rainy day in Jerusalem. Um, and these are, not <clears throat> these are not the uplifting uh, things that, that uh, we would wish to see at the end of a book of the Bible. Um, so they're not triumphant but they're somber and it is a I think that that's instructive for us um, because just like that daily burnt offering at the temple every morning every evening every morning every evening the smoke is rising from that burnt offering reminding the people that sin remains and not only that sin remains but that a Savior is coming. And now we are reminded, even, even in our days of being defeated, when, when our day ends like Nehemiah ends, right? Um, we are somber, but we are reminded of God's good gift of Jesus. That, that we can't do this. We, we cannot do this on our own. We, that, that is not the point this, is not, this book is not a self-improvement manual. Right? It, is, it is showing us our own sinfulness and God's good gift of salvation. Right? So don't let, don't let the end of Ezra and Nehemiah just leave you there. 
but be reminded of God's faithfulness um, in all generations. Let's pray.